difficult situation. And lastly, Lord, I lift up Suzanne and I lift up young Presley, Lord, who's just uh, not even a week old, but I do pray for the situation that is going on with her heart. Pray, Father, that you would intervene and your healing hands would be upon her. Pray, Father, that you would heal this young child. I pray that you would minister to Suzanne, pray that you would minister to this family as a whole, and God, that their hope would truly be found to be in you. So once again, we just thank you for the privilege of prayer. Lord, I lift up this time now as we turn to your word that you would bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, will be starting at verse 1. What the Lord is going to be doing in chapter 10, he is going to be teaching using a technique called the paradox. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement And here they'll be used by Jesus as a tool to convey truth. A paradox? Paradox would be along the lines of the fact that water is cheaper than diamonds, but mankind and mankind needs water to survive, but we hold diamonds in such more value than we do our water. That that would be a paradox, thinking that through. And so Jesus is going to use that concept of paradox in order to get his point across. So the Lord continues his life lessons based upon the fact that his death and his resurrection are coming. He's about six months away from Mount Calvary. So in verse 1 it says, Then he arose from there, there would be Galilee, and came, he headed south, to the region of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. And so the Lord's ministry, as we're told in Matthew chapter 4, was one of teaching, of preaching, and healing. And we've seen all of these elements as we enter into chapter 10. We have a series of paradoxes that the Lord is using for the purpose of teaching disciples, of conveying the message of the gospel and certain biblical truths to mankind. And so the teaching technique that Jesus employs here in chapter 10 is going to be seen in a series of five paradoxes. That's how we'll divide it up that the Lord uses to instruct us in living a life that is worthy of being called a born-again believer. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling of which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's just these results of the Word of God as we sit in the teaching of them and we have a heart to do them that we see just so much come to pass in our personal life, but also in our corporate life as well. In our, the Genesis class that I'm teaching, we see in, in chapter 6 and chapter 7 where God gives Noah all of the instruction to build the ark. And one of the most important verses that are in that section of Scripture is when we're told that Noah did it. If Noah doesn't do it, then he doesn't have an ark when the hard times, the difficult days come, and he perishes with everybody else. But since Noah was obedient, 
Noah was able to survive that deluge <clears throat> that came. And so as hard times are coming, as we're in the midst of the world and the trials of the world, we're given this detailed instruction from the Lord that if we do these things, blessed will be us when we do do these things. So the first paradox is the two become one, verses 2 through 12. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept or this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house of his disciples, uh, in, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife, and marries another. Now it's like he's getting, let me make myself perfectly clear. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, he, she commits adultery. Now think of the importance of that final statement. Now this is from the perspective of God. In this particular case, they're trying to manipulate situations. Uh, they're trying to catch Jesus in a, in a situation that he's unable to speak his way out of. But you look at what the Lord said in verses 11 and 12, speaking from the perspective of the man and the woman, whoever commits adultery against her or, whoever, or when she commits adultery, remember what the penalty was for adultery? The penalty is death. Now, it doesn't mean that we go and we start stoning people for this, but the idea is, do you see what you're worthy of in the sight of God? And it's to take these things ultra-serious. And so the problem, well, there were some issues that were going on in that day. The issues were is that, well, there were certain teachers. When, when you go to Israel, especially on the Sabbath, You'll see people walking around in traditional, I shouldn't say traditional garb, but they wear these black suits and they'll have these hats. Some of them are kind of, you know, these big fur hats some of them have and some of them will have more of a plain hat. And, and, and they'll be dressed just a little bit different of these ultra-conservative Jews. And somebody asked, you know, why the difference is, well, it's because certain people that are involved in these different sects of Judaism are dedicated to one teaching of a rabbi or another teaching of a rabbi. It's something that was very common then, and it's something very, <clears throat> it's something very common today. And so there are certain rabbis that taught that you are not allowed, you know, who are dedicated to the Word of God, that you are not allowed to divorce your spouse for anything other than sexual immorality. And then there were others, hey, if she burns your breakfast, if she's not taking care of yourself, then you've got permission to divorce your wife. And so for acts of the flesh, either way, they're, they're giving their interpretation of scriptures. And Jesus is basically saying, that's not God's interpretation of scripture. Now, God has given an opportunity for adultery. But again, what was the penalty for adultery? It was death. 
And so that was the only reason that man was able to divorce his spouse, his wife or a wife, divorce her, her husband. Because what Jesus points out, and as he goes back to Genesis chapters 1 and, and, and 2, that man and wife were supernaturally joined together. So how would it even be possible for mankind to separate that? And, and if we think these things through, it's really impossible. So keep in mind, Jesus is still expanding on what he had taught in chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, as far as the kingdom of, of heaven. It says in verse 34, Then he called his people to himself with his disciples and said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So he's still of that same mindset illustrating chapter 9, verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And so it's the backdrop of those two concepts that I am to deny myself, that I'm to take up my cross and nail my flesh to that cross, that as far as to be greatest, we saw that lesson last week, the way up is truly down on my knees and to be the servant of all. Want to be really great in God's kingdom? Well, take last week's checklist as far as being a servant, being humble, and apply it to your marriage. Apply it to that place. A, a lifetime marriage is the most difficult thing that man or wife will ever do. You have these two people who are imperfect people that are joined together, and it requires a lifetime of dying to self for the benefit of one another. Now, this is one of those things that once you do that, your marriage is strengthened, your marriage is improved, and you'll be a beneficiary of doing that. But the problem is pride. Pride causes us to go off in our respective corners in that boxing ring. And when we do that, there's a great rift that will exist. Marriage requires a person to die to self and take up the cross every moment of their life. And that is one of the reasons why God has caused the two to become one. Because in the flesh, there's not a marriage that's going to be able to survive. But in the spirit, all things are possible. So we looked at a list last week and see how it applies to marriage. In that last week, we saw our teaching in, in five headings. Be a servant, be receptive, be gracious, be radical, and be pure so necessary in our relationships with one another and how much more so in a relationship with husband and wife. You don't evaluate your marriage by looking at this list and looking at your spouse. You evaluate that your marriage by looking at this list, looking at the Word of God and evaluating yourself. So not your spouse, but yourself. The more difficult the marriage, the relationship, the greater you have the opportunity to be that much greater in God's kingdom. Again, verses 2 through 4, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? So if he said no, then they were going to go one way. If he said yes, they were going to go the other way. But he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. 
Well, again, it's for the idea of, of adultery, but what they're trying to do is they're looking for loopholes. And so you had those, again, who are different sects of Judaism. But what does Jesus do? Jesus goes straight to the Word of God. And it's the place that we need to go because we have what is necessary for every aspect of living a life that gives glory to God. Also, you know, take it even back from there, living a life that is going to be sufficient for myself, sufficient for my wife, sufficient for my family. Verses 4 through 5. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, so he's answering that, um, that response of theirs, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. What is it that is a hard heart? A hard heart is a heart that will not forgive. It's a heart that will not be open and pliable to the word of God. And so, unfortunately, we do have those areas of the Scripture because it comes necessary because of a hardened heart. A hardened heart can be the one who goes off and commits adultery. Maybe comes back and even repents. Maybe, maybe not. But then that other heart can be so hardened. And if you're able to overcome that, then God will be glorified through that relationship to repented people that desire to get back right with God. Also, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that there's an opportunity when an unbeliever departs because of that hardened heart and they depart from that relationship. It could be physically and it could be spiritually. And what I mean by that, somebody that just takes off for whatever reason or somebody who maybe is there but isn't really there, somebody who isn't participating in the marriage. Now, again, we can so start manipulating that for our will to come to pass. This is something that ought not to be taken lightly because, again, in marriage vows, we make our vows to God, not to one another. God works that miracle. And it's what I point out in the marriages that I officiate. God is working a miracle during that time as he fuses the two together, as he bonds the two together and as the two become one. And so the only thing that is able to separate that is God, obviously, but mankind, as we conduct ourselves according to the word of God, and it's through that hardened heart that we see of one or the other, which can come about through adultery or can come about through abandonment. It's something that we must pray over and do diligence over. The problem here is marriage is being examined from the negative view. Now Jesus goes on to show God's divine design for marriage, verses 5 through 9. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh... So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has, again, supernaturally joined together, let not man separate. Now think of this work that God does. We're told in the scriptures that it's not good for man to be alone. When it says man, mankind. It's not good for mankind to be alone. Why is it not good for mankind to be alone? 
There's a variety of reasons, but I believe the main reason when it comes to the context of marriage, why it is not good for mankind, for male or female to be alone, is because what we see in in Genesis chapter 1, God made them according to his image. According to his image, he made them male and female. And so the way that I'm able to fully project the image of God in my children's lives, in my ministry, wherever it may be that God has called me to be a witness, is to be joined together with Terry. And it's as we are joined together and we're fulfilling God's ministry in our marriage that God fulfills what he desires through that marriage. And so it wouldn't be good for Mike to be alone. It wouldn't be good for Terry to be alone. And that's kind of twofold, looking at, well, if God has called us to be married and we refused, we refused the will of God, that wouldn't have been a good thing. But since we are married, if we made that decision to be divorced, once again, we're not fulfilling the image of God. And so it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because the two become one. Why do the two become one? Why are they fused together? Again, to fulfill God's image, because God's got reason and purpose for those whom he has joined together. Why did man join us together? Well, for so many reasons. I can think of four of them. Now I can think of four plus seven. The number one ministry that we have with the four children that he has given us and now the seven grandchildren that he has given us. There's the work of ministry and everything else, but it's undeniable the people that he has brought into our household and those who we are to minister to. And the only way we're able to minister to is to be the team that God has called us to be. And my weak parts, she's strong, and her weak parts, I'm strong, and as we come together, we're able to fulfill God's image into the lives of those God has called us to minister to. Four things that God wants to see in marriage. First, it's a dedication to our differences. In verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So again, made them in his image, male and female. So what's my job? Well, my job in marriage is to fulfill how God has created me as the man. I am to fulfill the masculine portion of our marriage. And as I do that, we'll do well. My wife, what is she called to do? She's called to fulfill the feminine portion of our marriage. And she does that real well. I do my part real well. And again, we're fulfilling the image of God. And guess what? Regardless of what society tells you today, there's a difference between men and women. Deep truths from Pastor Mike here. But there, you laugh, and it almost is humorous, but you look at society, you know, if you, if you just showed up in society today, you wouldn't think that there's any real difference or any difference that matters. It was interesting, children's ministry, they're looking at David's charge to Solomon. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, we kind of focused on this in devotions tonight, but it says, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, I go the way of all the earth, be strong, and prove yourself a woman. No, it doesn't say that. Prove yourself a man. Why? Because he is to fulfill whom God has called him to be as the man he has called him to be. Now, if that was David's daughter, he'd tell him, prove yourself a woman, a woman after God's own heart. But nonetheless, in my marriage, I am to fulfill the role of the leader of my home, 
the spiritual leader of my home and do the things that I've been called to do based upon the word of God as a man. And it's the same thing for her as a woman. And again, as we work in this manner, this way, we fulfill the image of God. And the family will do well. When one of us falls down, one of us refuses, whatever it might be, and things don't go so well. So there's the dedication to our differences, and the differences, regardless of what the world says, they're good things, they're God-ordained things. Secondly, marriage is a desire for departure. Verse 7 For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Um, The main thing that you need to see that is, is that we're starting a whole new home, a whole new household. God has brought us together because he has separate reasons and purposes that maybe even if you have this godly family, that they break off from that and God's got a different direction for them. Now, it's God's direction, but a different direction because he's going to use us all in unique ways. Now, I've been taught and trained by my mother and father, and if you would examine my life, you would see similarities between them both. But God's got a unique reason and purpose for me, and he has brought a terry into my life in order to achieve that. But problems arise just in our particular situation when I kind of have Terry there, but I bring Betty into the equation. Betty's my mother, or Hank, my father. He's since gone to be with the Lord, but that's not how it is to be. You take those influences, trained up in the way that you should go, but now God's in it when you two are together, when you're fulfilling God's image, and a big part of that is leaving father and mother. Taking that instruction and those examples with us, but again, God's unique will for your marriage. Thirdly, marriage is a devotion, um, yeah, a devotion to decision. For this reason, verse 7, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now it says that he is to, do, to be that. He is to leave mother and father and that he is to be joined. God supernaturally does that, but man can fight against it. And so what I have to be, I have to be accepting of our differences. I have to be accepting of the will of God. I have to be accepting of the person and who she is. She should flourish in who she is because she is married to me. Have I always been perfect in that? Yes. No, no, no. No, I I haven't. I haven't. And again, we can both keep list of where we haven't, but that's not what the desire of God is, is to make that conscious decision every day to be joined together with my wife for God's reasons, God's purposes. As the Lord, I believe, has called me to go and teach that class, it's down in Yucca Valley, we have an hour and a half, really it takes about two hours with traffic to get down there, about an hour and a half to get back. Time of day we leave, the traffic's not so bad. So there's those three and a half hours that God has given us. And really, just to, just to not so much to renew our marriage, I mean, driving a car is not going to do that, but just a reminder of those things. Now, I know not everybody, even in this room, is married to, to a believer, But again, God has allowed you two to be joined together, and God's got reasons and purposes. And so what do we need to do? We need to submit ourselves to his will. Because as we submit ourselves to his will, where are we at? We're under the shadow of God's wings, or under the protection of the Lord. And as we're under the protection of the Lord, doing what God has called us to do, 
God will enable us and God will bless us even in that marriage. Even in a marriage that maybe even started outside of God's will, it's because of the grace of God that we're able to flourish there as well. Fourthly, marriage is a dedication to our differences, a desire for departure, devotion to decision, and marriage is an adherence to dependency. Verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what are we told in Genesis? And they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And again, don't think naked, no clothes, although that's what it was, but still, they're transparent in that she is who she is, and from my perspective, that's okay, and from her perspective, that's okay, and vice versa with me. We're both naked, we're both transparent before one another, and that's okay. She has the freedom to be whom God has called her to be. I have the freedom to be whom God has called me to be. And even in the midst of my sin and imperfections, that she's there for the purpose of drawing me closer to the Lord in my weaknesses and the same with me. So even in my weaknesses, that's okay. Things need to be dealt with. There's no doubt about it. But although now that we've gotten married, I realize that she's not a... We're going back now 38 years. I realize that she's not a perfect person. But that's all right, because I realize if I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest with her, I realize that I'm not a perfect person as well, but we're the better off because of one another. And so from a biblical perspective and what Jesus is talking about, we need to see how absurd really divorce is. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter when they had him to themselves. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery as well. Divorce is allowed, but we see the importance God places upon it. Don't take it lightly. Second paradox, adults seen as children. Verses 13 through 16. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and bless them. His point is that we would be childlike, but not childish. Now, I have a grandson. He's with me right now, and his mother, and Chris Mike. His name's Christopher Michael, and we call him Chris Mike. Chris Mike, his best buddy in the world is his mother. Why? Because his mother is the one who provides for him. She's his source of nourishment. When he's hungry, she's the one who feeds him. When his diaper needs to be changed, she's the one who changes the diaper. And so there's in her the provision for his need. And it needs to be the same way with us for God. We need to understand that God is truly our provider. If we're weak in our marriages, then it's God who is our provider. If we're having issues with taking up our cross and following him, it's God who is going to enable him. One of the Old Testament names of God is El Shaddai. El means God, Shaddai means Almighty. He is God Almighty. 
And so our provider is the one who has the supernatural strength of God for the purpose of our care and for the purpose of our provision. Now think of yourself when you were a little kid, a little child growing up. You weren't concerned. Was anybody here concerned with food? Mom just went to the grocery store and got food, and there was always food for the most part in the home. Maybe not the food I wanted, but definitely the food I needed. As far as rent, we always had a roof over our head. I know some people, maybe even in this room, that may not have been the case, but for the most part, utilities never thought about turning the light switch on. You turn the light switch on, you always expected the lights to come on because the utilities were paid, although as a child, you didn't think about that. You took for granted. You took for granted that you would be provided for. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we come to God as a child, just ex- expecting them. I'm not saying in a routine manner, but we entreat the Lord knowing that he is going to, as we seek first the kingdom of God, that he is going to provide for us. And so we come to the Lord understanding as far as salvation, it came from the Lord. As far as provision and protection, it still comes to the Lord. We come to the Lord as a child expecting these things. Now I'm not saying again, expecting these things, taking these things for granted. But understanding as we seek the Lord out, he provides for us just as when you were a child, your parents provided for you without you even recognizing the depth to which that provision uh, came from. The third paradox, the rich shall be poor. We have this one story, and when I say story, it was a reality. It's not just a parable, but this is something that happened of the rich young ruler, verses 17 through 22. It says, now as he, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's key. He's not doing this to destroy the man. He's saying these things because he loves the man. Loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, and God will do that to you. When you start taking him for granted, when you start looking at yourself from a perspective that you ought not to, because of the love of God, he'll bring you to where you need to be. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In the Bible, there are 490 verses that are related to faith. There are over 500 verses that are related to prayer. And there are over 2,000 verses that are related to money. In the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses deal with money or possessions. Why? Because we're told in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've used that example before, but look at our money and how important our money is. This is God's provision for us and our families. What do you do in order to earn the money that you have? You'll work 40 hours a week or so, whatever it might be. You'll spend time away from doing the, peop- doing the things that you like to do and away from the people that you love. So, again, it is important. There's no doubt about it. 
D.L. Moody said, A man's spiritual story is best told by his bank book than even by his prayer book. Again, you'll see through somebody's bank book the things that are important to them. Where we put our money is really an extension of where our heart is. Verse 17 Then one of the crowd, where am I at here? Wrong, wrong chapter. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him, asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he's looking at him as a good teacher again, as the Jews would do uh, a, a rabbi of that day. Now this is the only time in scriptures that a person comes to Christ, kneels before him, and leaves worse off than when he came. Why? How did that young man approach Jesus Christ? He approached Jesus Christ not based upon the righteousness of Christ. He approached Jesus Christ based upon his own righteousness. When he said, hey, these things I've done from my youth, the idea is I've lived the perfect life from when I was of age of accountability. And there's nobody who has lived a perfect life other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And really what this is, this is kind of an illustration of what we just saw. How is man to come to Christ as this little child, clinging to him? But what is this man doing? He's coming to Christ based upon his own merit. You cannot approach a holy God based upon your own merit because you are without merit in the sight of God. Notice the glaring thing concerning this man back then as well as those like him today. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. He was wealthy, he was youthful, and he was powerful. All these things that society values, but all these things that does not fulfill. You see people when they search and they, they reach hard after these things and they obtain them, not that you can obtain youth, but maybe health, and when they get them, they realize the emptiness that is there, the emptiness in wealth, the emptiness in power. You look at people that have obtained these things, they live in gated communities. They, they, they live under constant scrutiny. You know, you look at an actor, and what is the, one of the worst things is how they're hounded by their fans and by the, the, the people taking pictures of them all the time and all of these things, and really that which they sought after so diligently in actuality has become a curse within their lives. This rich young ruler, basically what he's saying is, I have kept all of the commandments. And what Jesus is telling him, nah, let's just start at the first one here. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You think you've kept all of the commandments? Go and sell off your God, is what he's telling this man. Go and sell off your riches. And this, he can't do that. He, he just, this, this is something that is just beyond him because he has an improper perspective of who God is, who he is, and who his riches is. And what did it do? It kept him from the kingdom of heaven. Fourth paradox, you must leave in order to receive. Verses 23 through 31 Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And so if he would have submitted himself to Christ, he would have been able to do these things. Immediately the father, I'm sorry, I'll try and stay in the right chapter here. 
Verse 23, I was in chapter 9. Verse 23, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when they they were greatly astounded, saying amongst themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it's impossible, but not with God. But with God, all things are possible. Now, Peter is digesting these things as he's hearing them, and he's asking them a a legitimate question. Verse 28, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And so Jesus just told that rich young ruler to leave all and come and follow him. Now Peter's saying, Hey, you know, we've done that. Now, Peter's not looking for riches. He's not looking for self, you know, basing this upon self-righteousness or whatever it might be. He's just considering the concept. So Jesus answered and said to him, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house. Peter and the disciples have done that. Brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and childrens and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so the idea is, yeah, you, you've left that family, but look at the family that you have gotten. Look as you become, you, you left the world and you entered into the, the church of the living God. Look at all that you've received from there. Now, you notice one word there that, you know, all this brotherhood and, and friendship and uh, sisters and brothers in the body of Christ, mothers, uh, older men and women who are able to mentor you and minister to you, children, those whom you're able to serve, lands and just the provision that God's able to provide, and then that one word, with persecutions. <laughs> he just kind of threw that in there because that's a reality within the body of Christ. But really what Peter wants Jesus to do is to justify what he has done as he has given up his life of fishing, but how much more? How how much more have you received as you have received the benefits, not just of God in your life, but also of the church? And, And as we receive the benefits of the church, we receive that which is necessary for hope and strength in the midst of hardship in this life. And as we realize that, you're realizing that in actuality, I am in the midst of God because everybody who is part of the church, who is born again, is filled with the Spirit of God. And as I need provision in my life, God provides for that through the body of Christ. As I need strength, as I need hope for the day, as I need encouragement, whatever it is, it comes as we plant ourselves for fellowship in the body of Christ to be able to receive of all that God has. This is the reality of being a born-again believer. Again, it's not just getting saved and then at some point in life or some point in death going to heaven, but it's receiving in the midst of persecution, but of the benefits that God has for us as well. When we were growing up, we were Ursiolis. You know, dad was the father and mom, and I had the benefits of being part of that family, but now I have so much more being part of the family of God. 
And I've got these brothers and sisters, again, that I'm able to have fellowship with, that are strength to my soul. And I pray that I'm strength to your soul. And we're just doing what God has called us to do. And as we do these things, we'll do well. One thing we're not going to do is to finish the chapter tonight, though. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do come before you and we just thank you, Lord, just for the richness of your word and the beauty of it. And so I just pray, Father, that we would consider these paradoxes, things, Lord, that the world considers to be so important. But, Father, we see how being a born-again believer, being filled with the Spirit, is the fulfillment of the things that you desire. And so, Father, I just pray tonight for those who have come out. I pray that you would bless us. I pray for those who are watching this on the Internet, that you would minister to them and God just continue to do a great work in us and through us. I pray for the marriages of this church. I pray for those whom you have called to be single, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen them in all that you have called them to do. And God, we would just be a church that is firing on all cylinders, just fulfilling your will according to your plan. And Lord, in the midst of your desires. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name. Amen. You all stand, please. Again, if you're able to come alongside of us, we can use help on Sunday night in the service to our community. Uh, it's not too late. Um, as far as trunks, I don't know. Can they still do that as well, Deborah? Yeah, so just talk to Deborah about that, and that would be a blessing. But the main thing is is to get the word out because, again, the gospel is going to go out, and we want to see the gospel to go out to people who are unsaved, the unsaved of our community. It's how we change the community, if you will, one person at a time. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of the week. I just liked that reminder of how we really are a family, and God is our Father, and through this last song, let's just sing as a family with one voice just to our God and just thanking Him and praising His name.
God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your week.